people think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, today we're going to be talking about, you know, the match. How do they really figure out the match when you're getting a kidney? And today we're here with uh, Dr. Raphael Villacana. He's the Associate Director of Kidney Transplantation at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. And we're, uh, it's, it's, it's changed over the years. So welcome to the show, Dr. Villacana. Thank you. It's good to be here. So can you explain a little bit about, you know, when you're being tested, you know, you go, you get your labs drawn, and they test different things. Uh the first one being blood type compatibility when you're getting a transplant. Can you explain a little bit about the blood type compatibility when people are, are seeking a transplant? Sure. So blood type compatibility is probably one of the first questions that we ask um, when uh, we see someone in clinic. Uh, as you know, many people don't even know their blood type, and so at that visit is when we actually check uh, what blood type uh, what, uh, an individual might be. Um, what we uh, what we'd like to stress is that uh, blood type is just one of the first uh, uh, phases of testing, and there's actually going to be many more levels of testing, and I'll get to that uh, a little later. Uh, bottom line is it is preferable to have someone um, to be blood type compatible with uh, their uh, their donor. That's not always the case uh, if someone has a living donor, and I, and I can uh, elaborate on that uh, a little later. The, the majority of the population, at least in this country, uh, are going to be either blood type uh, O, probably about 40 to 45 percent, and also blood type A, another 40 uh, to 45 percent. Blood type B is less common at around maybe 10 percent, and the uh, more rare uh, blood type is AB, which is uh, about 5 percent. So when one gets uh, their result from our coordinator, they'll say, well, what's my blood type? Um, It'll be either O, it'll be A, B, or AB. Many people will will, uh, also say, well, I'm A positive or A minus. Um, for transplant, that's not really all that relevant. It's mainly just the uh, the letter. So I'm O negative, so it doesn't matter O positive. It, it, basically, about 45% of the population has it, which O is like the universal donor. Can you explain about the match a little bit? Sure. So in terms of uh, a match, and I, I guess what we're referring to is, is when um, someone has a, a deceased donor, n- not a, a living donor, and we'll, t- we'll talk about living donor in a brief period, but uh, let's assume that someone does not have a living donor and they're waiting on the list um, and they are um, O negative. We'll use you, use you as an example. That means they'll only be able to use donors in the population who are O uh, donors. Like, as you mentioned, they're the universal donor. So they can, in theory, give to, um, to anyone, but for the matching purposes, O donors go to O recipients. Because O recipients can't uh, don't excuse me can't uh, receive from uh, anyone, they are pretty much limited to just O donors. And so, on the deceased donor list, if an O kidney comes in, would it ever go to another blood type like A or B? Would it, or it would specifically go to an O? It's specifically uh, supposed to go to an O uh, individual who's waiting um, for a transplant. 
And so if you're AB blood type, is it more difficult to get a transplant because you're such a small percentage? I always thought O's were the most difficult to transplant, but it sounds like AB is only 5% of the population. Well, that's right. They're only 5% of the population, but uh, for some reason, there's uh, the shortest wait times are for uh, individuals who are AB blood type. Oh. It's interesting, but uh, as you mentioned, and I mentioned earlier, 5% of, of the population is, is AB, but that means that they're only competing with AB uh, donors for AB recipients. So the, the pool is much smaller. And uh, if there's variations in, in kidney problems in that population, um, then they'll, they'll reflect that way. And they generally tend to have lower uh, wait times. The longest wait time tends to be uh, blood group O because almost half the population is O. And... Uh, that's what we found at our transplant center. In regards to A and B, just so they don't feel left out, how do they rank in wait time? Well, unfortunately, uh, all across the country, the wait times are, are growing. They're getting very longer as more people uh, are having kidney problems. They're getting on the transplant list. In Southern California, the, uh, the waits are very, very long. Uh, just for an example, it could be almost nine years for an O uh, recipient. And for an AB recipient, it could be as short as maybe four years, as an example. The other blood groups, uh, blood group A, uh, is a little bit shorter at around maybe seven years, six to seven years. And blood group B is actually closer to uh, uh, blood type uh, O. So they're all very long, but clearly the uh, AB blood group, which is the most uh, rare form, is the group that uh, waits the least. It, it is. It's a, Well, I think also, too, that so many people are living longer with transplantation that we're requiring another kidney like myself. And, you know, many years ago, you just didn't live a long time. So I think that's a tribute to the success of uh, kidney transplantation, too. Yes, uh, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, retransplants are very common. Um, and uh, we're seeing uh, individuals for the second uh, or maybe even third transplant and, uh, and, and people do uh, um, better and live longer, as you mentioned. Now, with antigen match, it's a zero to six range. When I got uh, my third transplant in 1990, it was a six antigen match to see stoner. Uh, you know, I had 100% antibodies, pretty much, no, 98% antibodies at the time. So, uh, you know, my mind has always been about the antigen needs to be closer. And that's changed a little bit. Can you explain a little bit about antigen match? Sure. So you touched up on a few things. One of them is what we call the perfect match or the zero mismatch, which sounds like you received uh, 21 years ago uh, for your third transplant. The bottom line is that there is, in the transplant community, there's felt to be six uh, HLA proteins, which uh, are involved in uh, immunity, immunology, and rejection. And the, the teaching was is that the more matches ranging from zero to six, the better the outcome. And that's still to a certain extent true, whereas a six uh, match or a perfect match such as you had is still considered to be the gold standard in terms of performance and longevity. However, what we found is that if you have, say, zero to four matches, it really doesn't make much of a difference. Starting at maybe five out of six matches, then there, there is a, a slight difference, but definitely six out of six matching is, is, that, is considered excellent and, and the, uh, the gold standard. But bottom line, if you have zero or your two or three match out of six, um, it's very similar 
and uh, very good outcomes uh, as well. I, I know it's kind of crazy because, uh, uh, you know, when many years ago, we'd sit around and have lunch and like, oh, what's your antigen match? And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, six is great, but it's really like hitting the lottery, isn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. For someone who's awaiting a, a, a deceased donor transplant, and they get that, that call, which is very exciting, it may be unexpected because when there is a what we call a perfect match or a, or a zero mismatch, often many times the individual uh, does not wait the the length of the wait time that I, that I mentioned earlier. Um, people can wait just a few years if they get that uh, perfect match, which you know, as you mentioned, is kind of like a mini lottery, really, and, and thus you don't wait because the performance is is excellent and the the match is outstanding that we that they. Um, get to proceed to the front. Yeah, you just basically hop to the top of the line, right? <laughs> Pretty much. So uh, can you explain a little bit about tissue typing, or I guess it's called the cross-match. That's a better term. So that would be the third test they would go through. Right. So then the cross-match phase is when either you have a living donor and uh, you check your reaction at the tissue level between you and your donor, or if you have a deceased donor, that happens um, on the, the day of the offer, and wherever that, that donor may be, a uh, blood uh, sample is sent, and uh, what we call the tissue typing or the HLA tissue typing is done. Many people sometimes will confuse the cross-match with maybe a blood type compatibility, which is very, very different. Uh, the blood type compatibility is mainly uh, discusses and alludes to proteins on the surface of red cells. And that's what gives someone, say, an A blood type or a B blood type. The HLA typing is a lot uh, more complicated and, and uh, quite different, but bottom line, very important as well in terms of predicting who will be at higher risk for rejection. So many uh, transplant centers are affiliated with HLA labs, which are these specialized labs that deal with uh, immunologic issues and the uh, tissue typing. And when they refer to, well, I have a negative cross-match, that means that their immune reaction amongst the recipient and the donor is very negligible and they're very safe to proceed, which is pretty much the standard at, at most transplant centers is to proceed when you're ABO compatible and you have a negative cross-match. That's, that's the, the green light to proceed. So basically, just to put this in terms is like uh, you'll put the recipient's blood with the uh, donor's blood and just see who dukes it out. And if the the recipient blood doesn't react too much or doesn't re react at all, that's a negative cross-match. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, unfortunately, some people will have a positive cross-match. And then many, at many centers, that the, the transplant would be canceled. At very few centers, um, including ours, if someone has the adequate preparation, the adequate medications on board, then, yes, we could proceed under certain, certain circumstances. Uh, with that transplant. Yeah, because I, I, I've heard on many occasions where patients have gone to the hospital and they've been offered a kidney and then their their last cross-match is positive, so they, they don't get the kidney. And that's why it's also so important to um, for the people listening to make sure that their blood samples get in regularly. Yes, that's a great point. So while someone is on dialysis, we typically, at least our, at our transplant center, we, we'd like to have quarterly blood samples just to kind of keep, keep up with what's going on from an immune perspective. There are many uh, reasons why the immune system can be uh, stimulated. One of them could be something as simple as a blood transfusion. And say someone gets a blood transfusion 
and then their immune system gets stimulated, antibodies can start to circulate. This could affect the crossmatch. So that's why people do a final crossmatch because many things can change between, say, the first time you did a crossmatch, say, with a, a living donor and a recipient, and say, say they were fine. Say a, a brother and sister did a crossmatch uh, six months ago, and the sister is to receive the transplant, and she received a, a blood transfusion maybe two or three months ago. They repeat the crossmatch maybe a week before the transplant, and all of a sudden it's positive. That's probably because of the blood transfusion. And so if somebody gets a blood transfusion and they're on the transplant list, they need to let the transplant center know and get retested? Absolutely. Um, a blood transfusion is probably one of the, the major factors that can alter the immune system in, in terms of transplantation and can alter a, a crossmatch. That and also a pregnancy and a prior transplant, which obviously um, we would hopefully know about. But the blood transfusion, as you know, can happen all of a sudden. People can get anemic and all of a sudden a trans transfusion is recommended and performed. We definitely need to know about that so that we could repeat the uh, antibody testing or this um, PRA, um, which we can discuss uh, further. But that, that can also alter that and make the risk for a positive crossmatch all the greater. Well, one of my friends, uh, basically she has a transplant and has a... a a good hemoglobin. So she, when she has to have surgery, she actually banks her own blood. <laughs> a great idea. You know, which uh, I've never been in a situation to have a hemoglobin high enough to do that. But, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, blood in, uh, really impacts your ability to get transplanted. So, you know, we're going to switch a little bit because we're talking about deceased donors, but I, I want the audience to know about how when you have a living donor, how the situation changes in, in some of these factors. So why don't we start again with blood type? You previously talked about, you know, O's go to O on the deceased donor list, but uh, when you're having, you have a living donor, um, you can have an incompatible blood transplant. Yes, actually, that's a great point. You can definitely have a... a a blood type incompatible kidney transplant that's been uh, going on for many, many years, especially in uh, other countries such as Japan, where deceased donor uh, transplantation is not as widely accepted. So what many places have, have now uh, done is adopted a protocol to try to get around this barrier of uh, being blood type incompatible, because many times this is where things begin and immediately end if there's a, a blood type incompatibility. I'm sure you know many people who have had, oh, I had a donor, but they were incompatible blood types, and that was the end of the story, so I remained on dialysis. Nowadays, thankfully, there's a few options uh, for, for that very issue. Number, the first option uh, would be one that some centers offer, including ours, which is uh, doing an ABO incompatible kidney transplant. To date, our center has done over 30 uh, transplants with great success. It does take some extra uh, testing, extra medications before the transplant, but bottom line, after the transplant, Someone who receives a compatible versus an incompatible kidney transplant is very similar in terms of their protocols after the fact. If someone, for instance, is a, maybe a little leery about undergoing the protocol, or maybe the, uh, the strength of the blood type incompatibility is, is too strong, there are many um, other options, including a very exciting and more recent development, which is the kidney paired exchange, which I'm sure many people have heard about. It's been in the media quite a bit and uh, been quite successful as well. And that's basically when you have a donor that's incompatible, you can get put into a pool, and then they try to find you. It's basically like dating for kidneys, right? It, it is. It is. And it, and it could be a, a very uh, exciting process, and, and many people can be impacted positively 
by being able to donate when they thought they couldn't to someone else, but and their loved one does receive a transplant through a different donor. And many times they don't even have to live in the same city. They could live in different states, and there's been many successful stories uh, on this very uh, topic. And if you have an incompatible uh, donor, you can also go through some treatments, and, and would that be classified as desensitization? Yes. Many people would, would call that uh, desensitization because the protocols were based on those earlier experiences with individuals with, with uh, positive cross matches. And so we've basically adapted that protocol, which uh, includes, um, at least at our center, IVIG, uh, rituximab, and plasmapheresis. And then uh, we, we, trans, uh, we proceeded the transplantation. Well, we're going to have a, another interview about that with Dr. Stanley Jordan. So if you want to learn more about that uh, desensitization, you can listen to that show. So when you're moving forward with living donors, uh, can you talk a little bit about the antigen match? So for the antigen match, we'll know um, within a week after the, the testing uh, is done as to what the match is. And they could, as, as I mentioned earlier, the same uh, principle applies to the, as a deceased donor, where there's basically six key uh, proteins, if you will, for uh, immunology, and, and we believe that would lead someone to a higher risk of rejection. The better match one is, the thought is that the less uh, risk for rejection. Six out of six match is being uh, still considered the gold standard and the perfect match. They are considered to be uh, least at risk for rejection, and those individuals tend to have less medications afterward because we feel that their immune system is obviously not going to be as stimulated against the uh, the kidney uh, compared to a, a lesser match. The bottom line is, say it's again zero, one, two, three, even four uh, matches. The performance isn't all that different, and uh, one should not be afraid of accepting a, a kidney donor with that, those characteristics. With living donors, I mean, I guess if you're you're identical twins, you would have a six antigen match. Is that the case, or do you do you see many living donors who are six out of six? It's it's uh, not very common, but yes, it, it does happen. Uh, and you, you mentioned uh, uh, twins. Well, it depends on, on the the kind of twins. Uh, we uh, at our center have actually transplanted a, a couple sets of twins. And I remember one in particular. Uh, they are so well matched that the recipient is actually on no medications for uh, their transplant, wow. which is beyond the uh, six, out of six, six out of six uh, uh, matching principle because they are identical at every um, immunologic um, parameter or testing that can be done. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's like the uh, uh, holy grail of transplant, not having to be able to take any medications afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. That is the, the best outcome, and it's very satisfying. So can you explain a little bit about tissue typing um, and and the cross-match with living donors. So uh, a few minutes ago, I, I described an example of, uh, say, siblings who wanted to donate to each other. And the initial uh, step is really to do the cross-match. That's done very early on, and it's sent to a very specialized lab. Uh, some transplant centers have one um, affiliated, um, such as an HLA lab. This testing actually can take maybe a, a week or two because it's uh, very detailed. It, very labor-intensive. It's not like just checking a creatinine or a hemoglobin. It takes quite some time. But bottom line, what they're doing is they're looking across various proteins and markers that we consider to be at higher risk for transplant, including HLA, 
and it, and they could uh, be anywhere from HLA, what we call A, B, and then the, at the DR. The bottom line is it's just a, a big picture. It's just a reaction. Will I react against my uh, my donor from an immune perspective? And we can predict that. So if it's positive, generally many places will say, not a good idea, let's not do this, let's think about other donors. You'll hear, as you alluded to earlier, about protocols with uh, Dr. Jordan where he'll discuss ways to get around that, that problem. The bottom line is, is that at the beginning you'll know, is it a positive cross-match, is it negative? If it's negative, then that's, that's the first step. The, the cross-match then can be repeated anywhere from you know, a couple months later to even as late as a year because sometimes things happen. Say someone, uh, a living donor, begins a process and for whatever reason they can't get around the donate or the recipient is not ready, and all of a sudden it's almost a year later. The cross-match is always repeated, generally within about a week before the transplant. Unfortunately, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes the, pr the cross-match can become negative, be negative and all of a sudden become positive. And some of the reasons, and the main reason really is either a blood transfusion that occurred in the interim, uh, a pregnancy, I guess, although not as common, or just some type of variation uh, in the immune system, which is not as common either. The bottom line is it's a blood transfusion is, is what's going to get someone uh, to have a negative turn to a positive cross-match. Uh, if you have people who've come forward as a living donor, is it more likely for a match with a family member? I think, I think the answer really depends on the recipient. If the recipient has a lot of antibodies, then they are going to have a higher risk of, of having a positive cross-match with just about anybody. So really, in our, in, in our program, we really don't uh, favor, say, a, a family versus non-family, um, unless there's, like, as you mentioned, like a better match, and say that's where we'll favor, okay, if someone's a five or six at a, you know, at a six match, of course we'll favor them. As, as a donor, but for the most part, I think uh, we really uh, we really see family and non-family as very similar. Can you explain a little bit about when people go to other areas, they often sometimes get transplanted, and that's because, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I received a lot of blood from LA, so if I have you know seventy percent antibodies in my area, if I were to go to another area. I might not have any of those antibodies in that area. Well, that's uh, that's uh, partially true. Um, you're referring to the PRA. The PRA level. And that, that's what many people uh, will consider their antibody level with, um, in general. And yes, you're right. The PRA is, is basically an immunologic test that reflects the area where one lives. So we're, we're in Los Angeles. It's a very diverse area. And um, you, you may have received blood from, from this area as well. So it, it all depends. Now you can go to a different part of the country, say um, in, the, in the middle part of the country where the uh, demographics of, of the donors are, are quite different, and your PRA could change. But if you're that high at 70%, odds are you'll still be high uh, in other areas. Well, that's what I found interesting because sometimes um, you hear these stories that patients move and then they get transplanted. <laughs> well, I think, you know, unfortunately, at least in Southern California, we have a very long wait time out of proportion to other areas. And so what we, what we hear, and, and thankfully it, it, it happens uh, quite often, which is great, is we hear about people who, who know other individuals or have family or friends in other areas where the, the, the wait times are shorter. They then get listed, sign up at other transplant centers 
in those areas, and they get a transplant uh, much uh, more quickly. You know, one of the things that people don't understand is that if you uh, you can get a preemptive transplant, I think uh, the requirement is you have to have a, a GFR 20 or below. Can you explain a little bit about the preemptive transplant process if you have a living donor? Yes, absolutely. So a preemptive uh, living donor transplant is something that, that is available, and it can be quite beneficial to many individuals if they can uh, time it correctly. You don't really want to do a transplant too soon, but yet you don't want to do it too late to where now one is not feeling well, maybe they're, they're needing a, a transfusion because they're, they're so anemic, um, etc. So bottom line is if someone can get a transplant and not yet be on dialysis, never even seen a day of dialysis, and we have quite a few of those individuals. What they do, and luckily you see that the patient is, is aware and, and they self-refer or their nephrologist, if they have one already, will uh, refer early as well. Bottom line is the transplant occurs maybe when the, uh, the GFR is between oh, 10 to, t to 20%, generally not too much higher than 20% because that might be, be a little bit too early. Many uh, studies have uh, indicated that those individuals who've had preemptive uh, kidney transplants, thus never seeing any dialysis, have better outcomes compared to those that did go on dialysis more than a year. Well, I can certainly understand that. <laughs> Just avoid the whole dialysis experience. You'll, you'll, you'll have less stress in your life. <laughs> yes, I, I think one can see that those that have been on dialysis can understand that, that there's many um, things that occur on dialysis. And if you could avoid all of that, if you could avoid... Um, having transfusions, if you can avoid having a catheter placed for dialysis, um, then it's all the, the more superior. Well, I think, you know, to to wrap up this interview, uh, and one thing that just occurred to me is that you, you go through all this work for the match, but the most critical aspect of keeping a match is taking the medication. So can you express how important it is for patients to take their medication? Yeah, that can't be stressed uh, enough, is the importance of taking one uh, one's immunosuppression uh, medication. You know, we can talk about perfect matches. We can talk about a living donor. We can talk about a deceased donor and all sorts of different types of donors to try to get the best outcome. But if one doesn't take the medicine, it really doesn't matter because one will lose their, their kidney in a real uh, quick uh, fashion. I've had individuals who had transplants from well-matched uh, family members, and those transplants were, have been lost within a year, whereas others had, you know, even a zero-match uh, uh, kidney transplant from a deceased donor, and yet it's still working 28 years later. So it really is very variable, but bottom line is if you don't take your medicines, you're putting yourself at risk for losing the, the kidney and then requiring a second or even a third transplant, making it even harder each time from an immune perspective. Well, I know that I program my cell phone to take uh, my medication because I have to take it twice a day. And, you know, there has been an occasion where, you know, it, I forgot, like, maybe I think five times in 20 years. And, you know, you get freaked out about it, but I know that, you know, I have to take it. But it's when people forget repeatedly. Um, we're human. We do make mistakes. But it's it, it, with a particular medicine, Prograph, you're trying to maintain a level. And so if you're not taking your medication at the same time every day, those levels get erratic. And that can um, impact uh, rejection, correct? That's absolutely right. And you're so honest. It's only been five times in 20 years. I, I would say that's, that's what I recall. But I, I have a little bit of, uh, um, 
memory problems on that, but it, it has. It's been, I, you know, when my first two transplants didn't work when I was very young, when I got that third one and it worked, it, it, it almost is like brushing my teeth. I, I, I don't forget that, and I don't forget my medicine. That, that's so critical. You know, unfortunately, some people, everyone's different, and thus, if, say, someone misses their, their medication for even for a day or two, in those individuals, it may become a real problem. Whereas in other examples like yours, maybe a, a day um, once a year on accident, it, it doesn't affect you. But it, everyone's different, and it's hard to, to tell who will react in that way. That's it's a lot easier and safer just to take your medicines on a daily basis. Well, and I think what I did is, like, I'm supposed to take them at 8 o'clock, and then I, you know, I took them at 11, you know, and, and that, that has happened. I've been at a play, and you forget that, you know, 8 o'clock is the time to take them. But um, it's just... It's just to uh, emphasize the importance of the medication and then being monitored by your uh, physician. I mean, I hear a lot of patients, they're transplanted. They're like, oh, I only need to go get my blood checked every year. And I'm like, no, you don't. Um. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, the importance of medication, and we're discussing how important it is to take them. Another thing, unfortunately, medications are very expensive. And if, it's very important that if one runs into trouble from a financial perspective or loses insurance, we need to know about that. Your transplant center need, needs to be notified so that maybe we could do something, help out, and uh, avoid you uh, having a lapse of the medication. That's so true. I've heard so many cases where people just like, we didn't know what to do. And I'm like, why didn't you call us? I mean, uh, you know, I've been known to, um, people actually give me some medication sometimes, like, well, we don't need it anymore. I'm like, what do I do with it? You know, because it is so expensive. Uh, that it's 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 really difficult when you pass that three-year mark of getting immunosuppressant medication. And thank goodness uh, Senator Durbin has a bill right now that he's uh, uh, proposed about lifetime immunosuppressant drugs. So if people are listening to the show, go to our website and you can um, learn about that and some um, where to send your letter to your senator and uh, congressman too. And then, of course, with the new health care exchanges that will take place in 2014, hopefully people will have more access to insurance to be able to have uh, the coverage for the medication. That's very important uh, legislation, hopefully, that gets passed because obviously three years is not enough uh, uh, time for adequate coverage, and hopefully that will improve everyone's uh, outcome. Yes, I certainly just didn't want to keep my kidney for three years. I don't know about anybody else, but I become very attached. For good reason. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Villacana, for uh, such great information. This will be really helpful, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in clinic, too. Take care. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can see dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 